Over the next several weeks, we'll be camping out and working our way through the book or the letter, if you will, of 1 Peter. So if everyone will, go ahead and turn there and mark that spot in your Bibles. Uh, hopefully, maybe, by the end of 1 Peter, maybe that, that crease in your Bible uh, that makes it want to automatically turn to the book of Hebrews, maybe that will go away by the time we get done with 1 Peter. But let's, uh, let's real quick, let's pause before we get in too deep, and let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you again for this day. Uh, Lord, I just pray that you would, Lord, that these would be your words and not mine, that you would speak through me this morning. Uh, Lord, that you would speak your truth. Help me to convey uh, the truth in your word. Lord, we thank you for this passage in 1 Peter, for its depth and its richness. Uh, Lord, I pray that we would accept it as you have written it, that we would embrace it, um, wrestle with it, chew on it, and that we would, uh, Lord, just that you would... uh, that you would give us the, the hope and joy that we can experience through following you, through uh, the truths here in the beginning of First Peter. Lord, we love you and praise you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we're going to start just like always. We're going to start by looking at, anytime we look at a new book, we start by looking at who, who wrote it. That's important. Who wrote the book of First Peter? Obviously, that one's fairly easy because it says right in the very beginning that Peter wrote it. Um, the apostle Peter wrote it, but then we, be, we, we move from there. We're going to look at who wrote it, the context, or when it was written, who, did, who was it written to, because all that careful consideration of these questions helps us to better grasp the original intent of the text. And from that original intent, then we can examine how those original principles apply to our lives today. So we're going to start right in the very beginning, 1 Peter 1.1. Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So it claims right out the gate at the beginning of verse 1 that Peter, the apostle, is the author, which begs the question then, who was Peter? Most most, Most people in here will at least have some understanding of who Peter is, but it's important to really get that concept of who it is that's writing this because it's going to help frame of everything that he says. Peter is an intriguing individual. If you've ever spent any time studying Peter, uh, he's an interesting guy. All right, so let's go back and we're going to look at Peter's resume as an apostle writing this letter. We're going to look at his resume as recorded in the Gospels and in the early chapters of Acts. We're not going to call all his references, but I'll put them up there in case you want to see them. Number one, he left everything to follow Jesus. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus said, come follow me. Peter dropped everything and went. Major leap of faith. Then in Matthew chapter 14, we see Peter walk on water. Jesus says, come to me. Peter gets out of the boat in the middle of the storm and walks on the water. Then we see just a couple of verses later that Peter almost drowned. He took his eyes off of Jesus. He, he, he began looking at the storm. He was afraid and he began to sink. Then we see Peter declared Jesus to be the Messiah in Matthew chapter 16, and Jesus refers to him as the rock, all right? he gets, that's where he gets his name from. Peter turns right around a couple verses later, and he rebukes Jesus for saying that he was going to die, uh, and Jesus refers to him not as the rock, but as Satan. He says, get behind me, Satan. Uh, he refers to him also as a stumbling block in the same passage. Um, then we see Peter turns right around and he pledges ultimate allegiance to Jesus. Jesus, I will go where you go. I will die with you. I will do anything for you there in John chapter 13. 
So Peter goes into the garden to pray, leaves Peter on guard duty, and Peter falls asleep. He falls asleep on guard duty when he was supposed to be keeping watch. He drew his sword to defend Jesus when the soldiers came to arrest Jesus. He followed them into the city, and when they confronted him about who he was, he denied having any association with Jesus whatsoever. Three times he denied even knowing who Jesus was. In Acts chapter 2, we saw how Peter was one of the ones who receives the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And then he goes from there and he boldly preaches one of the first sermons there in Jerusalem. Then we see in Acts chapter 10, Peter goes and he takes the gospel to the Gentiles. He preaches to the Gentiles. And throughout there in in the book of Acts, we see Peter being persecuted by the religious leaders uh, there in Jerusalem and the political leaders all the way to Rome, from both in Jerusalem and in Rome. We find it, if you're like me, I find it pretty easy to identify with Peter. If you look at his resume and I compare his resume with my life, I can resonate. I, I can, that, that resonates with me. I can relate to that. We see Peter has his life as a series of ups and downs. His walk with Christ is a series of ups and downs. He has moments when he will, he will do anything for Jesus and then he fails Jesus. He denies Jesus. He lived with Jesus. He walked with Jesus. He left everything for Jesus. He preached the gospel boldly. He was filled with the Spirit at Pentecost. He was a leader in the earliest church there in Jerusalem. Eventually, he would die a martyr's death at the hands of Rome in the name of Jesus. Here was a man who knew Jesus. Peter knew Jesus. But Peter also denied Jesus. He lacked faith at times. He was obtuse to Jesus' words at times. He took matters into his own hands at times. He failed to trust Jesus at times. He didn't understand Jesus at times. So not only was was Peter a man that knew Jesus, Peter was a man who knew what it meant to be forgiven. Peter was a man who knew what it meant to be forgiven. And it's this man toward the end of his life, that was inspired by God to write this letter encouraging believers, encouraging these, this group of churches, many believers spread out, uh, to stand firm in the face of persecution and suffering and to find joy and hope in Christ no matter their present circumstances. I don't think there is a book in the Bible, there's not very many books in the Bible, none that I can think of offhand that are more relevant to what we face today than Peter's message to these churches here in his letter of 1 Peter. So, what were these circumstances that these churches faced, and who was this letter actually written to? The letter was addressed to, there in verse 1, the exiles of the dispersion. Most likely that's referring to Jewish people who had left Jerusalem and established communities in cities through parts of what is now modern-day Turkey. They established these communities, they came to Christ, and they were facing local persecution for their beliefs. It would also include not only those Jews, but also the Gentiles who had come to faith in Christ and joined those churches as well. These were... Christ followers then, who were facing persecution from their local culture. They were living in the midst of a pagan culture in a pagan region or under Roman authority, and they were bombarded with the temptation to compromise their beliefs and to return to their traditions or to embrace the ways of the surrounding culture. Does that sound relevant today? Sound relevant to 
our lives here in 2022 in the United States? The temptation to either compromise or be quiet? At the time it was written, this was not yet full-scale persecution by Rome, but this was rather, this was cultural persecution. This was local persecution. There was a cost for these people to follow Jesus, a cost in their own society. Social persecution. It was social persecution at this point, but it was building until just a few years after this, it became full-fledged government persecution, government-sanctioned persecution of Christ followers. Again, sound familiar? He writes to these believers and he's encouraging them to stand firm in the face of cultural pressure and to hold fast to the hope they have in the Lord. Now, normally, so this is not going to be the norm, normally we'll take larger chunks of scripture at a, of the text at a time, um, but for today we're going to stick just looking at, we're just going to look at Peter's introduction today. And even in doing so, I told Pastor Mark this morning, I already feel like I've bit off more than I can chew in the first two verses. Are there such rich theology found here in the first two verses of 1 Peter? So that's where we're going to turn. We're going to look there at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So remember now, he's writing this letter to Christ followers, and he starts off by reminding them here, in his introduction, he reminds them who they are in Christ. He reminds them of their identity. This is not just a side note, it's not just a rabbit trail, it's not just a fancy formal introduction. He does this deliberately. He does this, sets the stage, it frames everything that he's about to say. He reminds them first and foremost in his introduction of who they are. Typically we think of an introduction as introducing who the speaker is. Peter briefly acknowledges that, but then in his wording he makes sure to emphasize or to point out who they are. The the encouragement he's about to offer is based on their identity as Christ followers. It's based on the reality of what Christ has done on their behalf, and there is great hope found in that identity. When culture and society is bombarding you with the temptation either to compromise and go with the flow of culture, or sit back and pine over your circumstances, or long for former days, for days gone by, When persecution around us begins to rise, the temptation is to focus on the waves and take our eyes off of Jesus. Peter understands that very well. Peter understands this well. Likewise, today, we can relate to these situations, the situations that these early Christ followers faced. Persecution is not the official state position yet, but there is definitely a cost to following Christ in our culture today. Our society hates Anything that resembles truth and will actively seek to undermine it, to redefine it, to rebrand it, etc. in order to justify the sinful desires of the flesh. If you hold to the truth today in the United States of America, if you take a stand for what the Bible teaches, you will be branded a bigot or a racist. Standing for truth, standing for truth will be called hateful, will be rebranded as hate speech, and you will be mocked and ridiculed and ostracized and canceled from the larger community. That's the reality that we live in right now. 
Following Jesus openly and boldly today comes at a cost, and that cost gets higher and higher every single day. And like them, we also need this same encouragement, this same message to stand firm in the gospel, in the gospel truth in the face of rising persecution. The, the issues that the church that Peter was writing to was facing then are the same issues just several hundred years removed that we're facing here today. It's easy to get distracted. It's easy to get overwhelmed by our circumstances. Just watch the news for a few minutes. It's easy to get overwhelmed. It's easy to take our eyes off of the one who is the author of our circumstances. We need this same wake-up call. And like them, that begins with Christ followers being reminded of our identity in Christ. So that begs the question, Who is the church? What is our identity? As Christ followers, who are we? It's important to remind ourselves of that reality because that's going to frame how we respond to everyone outside these walls. First and foremost, he addresses them as exiles. He addresses them as exiles. The churches Peter addresses here are referred to in this way, refers to them as, as exiles, as foreigners, as transients. They're residents or aliens in a foreign land surrounded by a culture that's hostile to God. Now, he's not here directing them to remember Jerusalem or set their hope on the, uh, a return to the promised land of Israel. Remember, this is a mixed congregation, Jews and Gentiles. But rather, he's using an illustration from Israel's history to describe their present reality. They had been in their past. They had been forcibly removed from the promised land for their persistent sin as a nation. And they were forced to live for generations in exile in Assyria and Babylon and Persia before God restored them to their earthly inheritance. And here he's writing to these various churches scattered all around what is today Turkey to remind them that both Jew and Gentile, wherever they are found, are exiles in a land not their own. That's their reality. As the Jews of the exile were not ultimately citizens of Babylon, so here he reminds them that members of God's church are not citizens of this world, wherever you're located. And the same is true of the church today. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. If heaven's not my home, then Lord, what will I do? The angels beckon me from heaven's open door and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. All right, That's the Southern Baptist version of what Peter's talking about here. That's what he's getting at. When the Israelites were carried into captivity, God spoke to them through the prophet Jeremiah with some practical words on how to live as People of God, as God's people in a foreign land. If you'll turn to Jeremiah chapter 29. Jeremiah chapter 29, starting in verse 1. Starting in verse 1. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So this chapter in the book of Jeremiah is introduced as a letter to the exiles. And he goes through this letter, we're not going to read it all, but he goes through and he gives them some practical advice on how to be God's people, how to live in a foreign land. You are not citizens of this land, but here's how you are to conduct yourself in that environment. So we're going to look specifically at verses 4 through 7. It says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, 
to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So who's in charge of their exile? God is. He says, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives, have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. So he's writing to these exiles, telling them, listen, quit looking back. Quit, quit whining about the way things used to be. Quit bemoaning your current circumstance and live as God's people where I have you. This is your situation, situation now. Quit worrying about your circumstances and be faithful. Live as my people where you are. Buy houses, settle down, get involved in the community and make a difference in my name. And you can go on and read the rest of the chapter to see he gives even more information there, uh, more advice. But in much the same way, we're going to find that this letter from Peter to these churches gives a great deal of practical instruction for how to live as the church of God in a land that is not our home. And the reality is just as true for the church today as it was then. Just as true for the church today as it was then. God doesn't do dual citizenship. God does not do dual citizenship. If we are in Christ, then our supreme allegiance is to Him, and our citizenship is in His kingdom, and all that we have and all that we are is surrendered to Him. What does that mean? That means that our families are no longer our families. They are God's. Our money is no longer our money. It is God's. Our careers are no longer our careers. They are God's. Our possessions are no longer our possessions. They're God's. Our time is no longer our time. It's God's time. And this is what Jesus himself says in Luke 14, 33. He says, So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has can not Be my disciple. Cannot. That is a requirement that you give everything that you have over to the Lord. Now, this doesn't mean that our life in this world doesn't matter, but it changes our entire perspective on life, and there's great hope to be found when we're reminded of this. This idea that our hope is in our guaranteed inheritance rather than our present temporary reality. It doesn't matter what we might gain or what we might lose or what the cost might be of following Christ in our circumstances because we know who's in control. And no matter what may happen in this world, we can count on God to be true to His Word, and we know who wins in the end. One of my favorite quotes goes like this, Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Those of us who have surrendered to Christ need to be reminded of this from time to time, that we are exiles in this world. Our citizenship, our ultimate allegiance is not to South Carolina. It's not to Sardis Baptist Church. It's not to the state of, or it's not to the United States of America. Our ultimate allegiance is to the kingdom of God. He is our ultimate king. And not only does he describe them as exiles, but he adds a, a modifier there. Not only exiles, but elect exiles meaning we are chosen by God according to His foreknowledge. So who is, who is the church? They are exiles, but we are also chosen. We are chosen. I told you there was some rich and deep theology in, this, in these two verses that we're about to get real deep real quick. 
What does he mean? It begs the question, and we can't gloss over it, and we can't skirt around it. What does he mean by elect exiles? What does he mean by foreknowledge of God here? And how does that give us hope? If that's the message Peter is at, why does he use these words? We, we do the, the word of God a disservice if we ignore those things. So, what does he mean, and how does that grant hope to the church in today's world? That's a great question, and I'm glad you asked. The temptation here is either to pass the buck and to gloss over this passage and just kind of skim through it and say, well, this is just Peter's introduction, and we're going to go on into chapter 1. All right. or, or, and hear me here, the other temptation is to redefine the clear meaning here in order to fit our personal philosophy. To redefine it to fit our personal preferences. This is a place where we have a tendency, as Americans especially, to bring our preconceived notions to the text and go, well, that can't be what God means, so it must somehow mean something else because I don't like that. So I want to caution you here against both extremes. We must deal with the text And we must do so in the light of the rest of Scripture, whether it fits what we like or not. Oftentimes we fail to hear God in His Word because we try to make it say what we want or we try to make it say what we like. We read our own philosophy or our own preferences into the text rather than let the text challenge and shape the way we think about the world. And the most common example in this passage is to claim that the foreknowledge of God means not that God acts sovereignly and chooses us, but that He can see the future and He knows who will choose Him, and those are the ones He refers to as His chosen. That's the temptation. That is the lie. That is the way we tend to want to twist it and say, foreknowledge doesn't mean, or God doesn't pick, that God doesn't choose, God's not sovereign. God just... He looks down the future. He looks into the future and he sees what we're, decisions we're going to make. And those are the, when he refers to the elect or the chosen, that's who he's referring to. And hear me when I tell you this morning that that is not true. That cannot be true. And there's a very serious reason why. Often that makes us feel better. When we think about that, that's easy for us to wrap our minds around. But it's blatantly false. And it denies both the authority of God and the clear teaching of Scripture. Don't don't take my word for it. We're going to look at a couple of examples of of Scripture. Because I know this is something that you've all heard or been around. Or at least if if, if you haven't had the thoughts yourself. that's, that's That's the place we naturally jump. And I've heard that said and explained so many times. So we're going to look first at Psalms 139. Turn with me to Psalm 139. Psalm 139, we're going to look at verse, just verses 13 through 16. I would highly encourage you to go and read the whole thing, but for the sake of time, we're going to look just at this segment here. The psalmist writes, For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. This is 
This is active language. This is not passive. This is not saying that God looked into the future and saw you before you existed. He says that God actively formed your days. Here the psalmist is acknowledging that God knew him before he was, not just intellectually, but actively. He formed him. Before I was, he says, you had already formed my days. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 9, starting in verse Verse 14 says, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Now, notice here that speaking on the sub, Paul here is teaching about, he's explaining the topic of election in this chapter. All right, again, I would highly encourage you, for the sake of time, all right, we're looking just at a segment of his argument. I would highly encourage you to read chapter 7, 8, and 9. All right, read the whole thing and get Paul's whole picture here. But he's speaking in the context on the topic of election and God's sovereignty, God's role in salvation. And what does Paul do? Paul here in verse 14, he anticipates this, he anticipates this objection of injustice and he addresses it. Now, if God just saw the future, who would object to that? Why is Paul stopping and answering it? Why, why are the people he's talking to, why does he already understand that they're going to have a problem with this? unless he's talking about the sovereignty of God. In the Old Testament, if we want to jump back and look throughout the, all the Old Testament, why were the Israelites God's chosen people? Was it because they were just better than everybody else? Bigger than everybody? Stronger than everybody? Why, why them? Was it because they did something to deserve it? Or because that's who God picked? Was it because God chose them? Or perhaps the biggest point to note, and this is where it gets real serious. There's a lot of discussion and a lot of debate, and there's different people have different viewpoints. Are but here's where here's where we have to drill down, and this is why this is so important. The biggest point to note of all is that Jesus is referred to in the same way. Jesus is referred to in the same way. If that's how you rationalize it, if you say. God's foreknowledge doesn't mean God acted sovereignly, that God had any serious, that God had any kind of role to play. God just looked into the future and He knew what decision I was going to make. Then you are denying the Trinitarian existence of Jesus Christ. Because look at what Paul says just a few verses later. In chapter 1, verse 20, look at how Peter describes Jesus. Not Paul, excuse me. Look at how Peter describes Jesus. In verse 20, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last time for the sake of you. That's the same Greek word, translated the same both ways. So to say that foreknowledge of God means God looks down through history and sees the decision you're going to make is also to say that God looked down through history and saw that Jesus was going to be a guy who was going to die on a cross, and so he decided, okay, well... That's, that's, that's a good, I, I like that plan. That's to deny that God ever, had, that, that, that's, that is to deny that that was the plan all along. To say that foreknowledge means God knows the future and that's the end of it. 
is to say that God did not have a plan of redemption from the beginning. Jesus was foreknown, as we were. Same word. Did God just look into the future and see that Jesus would redeem humanity, or was that always the plan from the beginning? Again, look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Adam and Eve sin. God addresses their sin, and here's what he says. As he pronounces judgment on their sin, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. Right here in the very beginning, he's already predicting that a Messiah is going to come and rid the world of Satan's power. He reveals right here, as soon as as man sinned, he reveals that he's already put his plan of redemption into into action. He's already got his plan in motion. It was a a countercultural idea to them as it is to us, but it may be even more so to us today than even to them because, hear me here, we live in a society whose chief idol, whose chief God is the God of personal autonomy. Our society worships the individual. How dare you challenge the choices or the decisions or the authority of someone else over their own body or their own life or whoever they choose or whatever they choose to identify as? Who are you to speak truth to them? Who are you to define truth to them? The world, our, our society tells us that truth is relative to whoever you are. Every person defines their own truth. That's the society we live in. We worship the God of self. And the same manner of thinking, if we're not careful, infiltrates the church. Because most people don't have a problem with God choosing Israel. But whoa, 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 God didn't choose me. I chose God. I'm saved because I decided. I surrendered. I prayed. I came forward. I, 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 I. Do we see a pattern here? And so often we bristle at the idea that God had any sovereign role in this whatsoever without stopping to consider it in light of what Scripture teaches. Because this is the, this is the plain teaching of Scripture throughout. And when we do so, when we stop and we examine what Scripture says and take it at face value and allow it to challenge our preconceived notions, allow it to challenge those bristles, that, those defenses that we throw up, we'll see that when we do so, that there's great comfort and there's great hope in this truth. And this is why it's so important that we grasp this. The problem here, first and foremost, I, will, I, I want to make very clear, is one of perspective. I'm going to use myself as an example throughout this, so hopefully you guys will, will understand. Yes, I did make a decision to follow Christ. That's a true statement. I decided to follow Jesus. I surrendered. I did confess, I did believe from my perspective. But it's important to ask the question, why? Why why did I do that? Why did I, where did that desire come from? Where did that courage come from? Why did I do those things? Because God convicted me. Because God opened my eyes to see the truth of the gospel and to believe it. God gave me the power to believe. God's election And man's decisions are not mutually exclusive events. They're two perspectives on the same event. One example of this is in John chapter 6. 
In John chapter 6, we said, Jesus says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. So He's saying, you, look on, look on the Son of God and believe, and you will have eternal life. That's a decision on your part. You look, you believe, you will have eternal life. Your perspective. But four verses later, same conversation, same context. Four verses later, he says, But no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. That's God's perspective. All right? Remember, God is bigger than us. God is outside of time. The reality is that no one chooses God on their own. The offer of salvation is open to any and all who would receive it. But no one will choose him unless God chooses to soften their hearts and convict their conscience. God doesn't prevent people from following him. Or by his grace, he opens the eyes of some to believe. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12 says, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. All right? We know that verse. We've memorized that verse. We, we, we hear that recited. We memorize that. But we stop there. If you finish the sentence, it says... No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. It is impossible to do good and please God apart from Christ. Apart from His work. I did not see God's sovereignty at work in my life when I came to Christ. From my perspective, I knew that I needed Him, and I decided to surrender my life to Him. That's what I could see. But from God's vantage point, which we will never fully grasp since God is so much higher than us, it was His foreknowledge that brought me to that point and opened my eyes to the truth. He's the one that turned my heart towards Him. He's the one that opened my eyes. Now we, so we don't need to be the theology police and correct someone every time they use the word I in their testimony. All right? that's, that's, there's nothing wrong with that. That's totally okay. I decided to follow Jesus. I accepted Christ. I, I surrendered my life to Christ. That's okay. But it's important to understand God's role in our salvation. So in the, in the context of 1 Peter and this idea of hope for the church that's facing po- persecution from culture, why does this matter? What's the point? Like, why, why are we digging into all this? Wouldn't it be easier to just skip over it and talk more about hope and encouragement? What's the point here? Because in this, there is hope. There is hope. This is where our hope is grounded. Because no matter my circumstances, no matter my suffering, no matter my pain, God's love and grace and mercy remain, and my citizenship in His future kingdom is secure. Guaranteed. Whether I face difficulty or stumble and fall the promises of God never change and in them I can trust and place my hope and find joy in the midst of whatever happens in this life because if God's love for me and his mercy toward me are truly by his sovereign grace and not because of any merit or any part of who I am not because of anything on my part then neither are they dependent on my performance If God is sovereignly acting behind the scenes, then it's not dependent on my performance because I am like Peter. 
Peter understands this concept. Peter looks at his resume and thinks, there's no way I deserve to be where I'm at today. I don't deserve to be a leader in the church. Look at how every other thing on Peter's resume was a time when he failed Christ. But who did God choose to lead the church in Jerusalem? Peter. Not because Peter was deserving, but because that's who God wanted to be there. That was the man God wanted to be at that point, at that point in time. Why did Peter follow Jesus? Because God, because Jesus Christ came to him and said, follow me. How many fishermen were surrounding Peter? How many other fishermen were there docked in Galilee? It's not a very big place. That was a, that was a, that was a major profession. There were many, many, many fishermen. Did Jesus issue a blanket call? No. He went to Peter and said, you follow me. Why Peter? I don't know. That's who God picked. That's who God chose. Now, God's all, that offer of salvation, all right, Christ's death on the cross was sufficient for everyone. That offer is freely open to everyone. Freely open to everyone. But if I know that my salvation is rooted in what God did for me. It wasn't because I was really smart and I figured this out and I believed it. It wasn't because I was strong enough to turn away from my sin. It wasn't because I was courageous enough to take a stand for Christ. It was because the Holy Spirit was working through me Then I know that the results are not dependent on my performance. We find hope in this life when we remember that God's people are exiles in this world and as exiles that we were chosen by God and set apart for God by the Spirit. So that's the third one. We're exiles, we're chosen, and we're set apart. The word here that's used is sanctified. Sanctified means to, to set apart. Well, set apart from what? Set apart from the world. We're, we're exiles, remember? We've, we've, already, we've, we've gone over that. We're to be set apart from the world. We are progressively molded into the image of God... And as we are, we should naturally look less and less like the world. Now, we, on, on Friday night, we, we talked about this a little bit, and the illustration was used of a photograph. All right? And I thought about this yesterday, and my, my daughter found a picture of me and my grandfather. And she asked, who was in the photo? Now, the general response would be, oh, that's, that's me and my grandpa. That's me and Papa in this picture. But that's not really true, because I'm here in reality. I'm here, that is a picture of me. That's, a, that's my image, but that's, that is not me. This is me. In the same way, we in the church throughout the ages of history, though our lives are never perfect, our lives are a picture of Christ to the world by the work of the Holy Spirit through us. So set apart from the world, but set apart for what? Look at what he says we're set apart for. For obedience to Christ. Here we see the Spirit's role in our salvation. This obedience to Christ does include a growing lifestyle of obedience to His Word as we grow and mature in our faith, but specifically here it refers to our obedience to Christ's command to repent and believe. It's the Spirit that works in us to turn us from our sin and our sinful nature that so desires and will always choose sin if left to its own devices and turn to Christ for salvation and forgiveness. It's the Spirit that draws us to Christ and gives us the desire and the ability to obey Him, to follow Him, to surrender to Him, to repent of our sin. And it's only possible for us to choose Christ by the internal work of the Spirit in our hearts. 
We must be born again, as Jesus told Nicodemus. And he used that analogy because that's something you cannot do on your own. That takes a a supernatural act by somebody who is greater than you. You cannot just go back and be born again on your own. We can't do that on our own or by any of our own effort. For them and for us, knowing that the power and desire to obey Christ comes by the work of the Spirit in our lives, we then can trust that same Spirit working within us to help us stand firm and obey Christ in the face of persecution. The same Spirit that drew us, that gave us the ability to repent, is the same Spirit that's going to give us the ability to stand firm in the day of persecution. And we find hope and take comfort in a turbulent world, even as we see persecution rising and the cost of following Jesus getting inflated, knowing that it is the Spirit of God that sets us apart from the world. God's people are chosen by God. The church is set apart by the Spirit. They're exiles, and fourth, they are reconciled. Reconciled by the Son. Though Peter does not use the word Trinity here anywhere, we see the threefold work of God in our salvation. Right here, in this opening paragraph, we see the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And he says here, through the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus, God's chosen people, the church, are reconciled. To God. Now here in this, this act of sprinkling of the blood is referring back to Leviticus chapter 16. All right, I would encourage you to go back and read that whole section. That's, uh, that's some interesting stuff there. But Leviticus chapter 16 describes the procedure for the Day of Atonement. And basically what would happen was once a year the priest would take a goat and they would kill this goat and they would, he would dip his finger in the blood and he would approach the, the presence of God and he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat before the Lord in order to atone for the sins of the people. And this had to be done every year. This was a ritual that they did every year. So it was by nature insufficient. If it was sufficient, it wouldn't have to be done again. We could go back through that whole section of Hebrews, but I won't do that to you. But... The picture here was that a fully sufficient sacrifice would come. The law was that way. It was set up to point to a future fulfillment. And that was the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Sin can only truly be atoned for once and for all by having the perfect blood of Jesus sprinkled on the mercy seat on our behalf. In other words, it's the blood of Jesus that pays the penalty for our sin and fulfills the requirements of the law for the purification from sin. Jesus humbled himself by becoming a man. He lived the perfect life that you and I couldn't live. He died the death that we deserved for our sin and rose again from the grave to serve as our high priest before God, covering the sin debt with his own blood of any and all of those who would repent of their sin and turn to him in obedience and surrender. Again, this drives us to great hope. As people of God, if we are in Christ, if we are followers of Christ, and we have that relationship with God, this drives us to hope. This is a source of hope and comfort. Being reminded that as a follower of Christ, I can approach God's throne in prayer and know that He hears me in my distress is a great comfort. The only way we can approach God is through the blood of Christ. Knowing that when this life is over, 
I will stand before God and be declared righteous, not by the standard of my life or based on my accomplishments, but by the perfect righteousness of Jesus who exchanged my sin for his holiness that I might experience God's love and grace and mercy both now and forever. That is how we find joy despite our circumstances. That is how the church has hope when the world seems hopeless. That is how God's people can shine as a light in the darkness. That is how followers of Christ can stand firm in the face of cultural pressure and declare the good news of God's sacrifice for sin and call people to repent for the glory of God no matter the cost. So what? So, so, so what, do, what does this mean? What, what is... What is Peter getting at here? The encouragement here from Peter, as we will see over the coming weeks, is a call for the church to stand up and stand firm on the truth of God's Word. Remember who you are. Remember by whose power you are where you are. Remember who it was that paid the penalty for your sin. Remember the grace that's been offered, the grace that you experience. If you take a stand for God's Word, if you take a stand for what is right, the world will hate you. Satan will come after you, and the temptation and the pressure to compromise will be great. But when that day comes, remember who you are in Christ. Remember who you serve. And may we all be found faithful when He returns. As we get ready to to close, as Michelle comes and plays softly and the praise team makes their way back up, I want you to think back on Peter's introduction here in this letter, on the identity of the church. And if you are a Christ follower, then take heart, be encouraged. In our salvation lies the peace that passes all understanding, secured for us by Jesus once and for all. Lean into that, embrace that today, and be renewed to fight the fight of faith. But if you're here today and you are not a Christ follower, you know that you've not, you haven't surrendered your life to Jesus. You know you're ultimately you're living for yourself. You're pursuing your own ambitions, your own pleasures, and you seek status and standing in this world. Know this. Lasting hope and joy and purpose is only found in repentance of sin and submission to Christ. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, His sacrifice was more than sufficient for you and is freely offered to you today as a gift it's freely offered it's a free gift but it will cost you everything if you're at the point where you understand you need him and you're ready to surrender everything you are and everything you have to him and to his will and for his purposes the offer is on the table at the end of the service today, I'm going to be up front. Pastor Mark's going to be in the back. We would love to walk you through what it means to follow Jesus. How you can have that same hope in the midst of today's craziness. Come and speak to me. Come and speak to Pastor Mark before you leave. Don't, don't leave this place. If that's you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much again for today. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity that we have today to, to wrestle with the, the hard truth of your word. Lord, I pray, I thank you for the, the fact that we know that, that you are greater and you are higher and you are 
all-knowing and all-powerful. And Lord, help us to take you at your word. Help us to trust you, to trust that your word says what it, that you mean what you say. Lord, I thank you for the hope and the comfort that comes from knowing that my relationship with you is not because of me. It's not because of my, it's not, it's not dependent on my resume because uh, Lord, that would be, um, that, that would be truly hopeless. Lord, I thank you for loving me even when I was unlovable. And Lord, I pray if there's anyone here in this room that does not know you as their Savior, Lord, I pray that you would open their eyes. Lord, that you would convict their conscience and draw them to yourself. Lord, we know that no one comes to the Father except through you. And Lord, I pray that you would draw people here this morning, that you would, that you would begin to draw hearts to yourself. That we can have that hope and peace and comfort. No matter what we hear on the news or read on social media, because we know who wins. We know how it's going to end. And Lord, I thank you. I pray that we would, as Christ followers, that we would lean into that. Thank you this morning for the reminder of who we are. Help us to not forget that so that we can stand firm in the face of whatever tomorrow may bring. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.